Good morning, everybody. A um, few things on the bulletin to pay attention to this morning. Uh, first off, we're still taking signups for our service bank. By way of reminder, a service bank is a place where you list just basic ways that you can help people who have needs, um, specifically uh, with watching children or giving rides, uh, uh, helping to create a budget, things like that, uh, preparing meals for people who are recovering out of the hospital or from pregnancy, those types of things. Um, I, have, um, I have given our deacons full authority to start tracking down and interrogating you to find out where you fit the list now. Uh, so watch out for Cindy and her clipboard afterwards. Um, but I'd encourage you to, to get signed up for that. And then the other part of that, the other thing that we're looking for help for right now, we're trying to build a team um, to pray with people after the services. And so you, so you can sign up with them on that as well. Um, this Thursday is our gathering for artists, St. Gertrude's, 7 o'clock at the house next door. And then uh, the main thing I wanted to draw your attention to is that the all-church retreat, which is happening June 3rd, 4th, and 5th, if you're not coming with us, if you didn't get a room for the weekend, I wanted to state the obvious and say you can still come up and hang out with us on Saturday. Uh, so if you want to catch the, the morning session, hang out for the day, stay as late as the evening session, um, you're, you're welcome to. We'll easily glom you on to our meal plan, so um, breakfast and dinner are taken care of. Enjoy Suncadia for Saturday. Uh, it should be a really good option, and if you have our bulletin, you'll be able to see a schedule of what we have planned so you can know when to drop in and for how long you want to stay. Um, the other thing on the bulletin I wanted to um, highlight <coughs> um, is that June 12th, we're going to offer a class. Um, it's, it's called The History of Redemption, and effectively what it is, is it looks at the entire story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation as a story. And so we'll walk through the whole thing together over the course of six weeks. We'll fit it into the format as if the Bible were a five-act play. Uh, and so it's a great way to get familiar with the scriptures. It's a good way to understand the story God is telling in the gospel and how it weaves all the way through all 66 books of the Bible. Um, and it's, it's also... Uh, a very good class for helping you communicate that to other people. Um, by the time you're done with this class, you should be able in five minutes or less to ask, to answer the question, what's the Bible really about? Uh, which is why I found it helpful when I took it, and it's why I've continued to teach it and modify it in all sorts of formats. So this will be a six-week class. It's totally free. It'll be at 1 p.m., and it'll be right here in the sanctuary. So uh, 1 p.m. on Sundays in the sanctuary starting June 12th. So keep that in mind. Consider that on your calendars. I'm looking forward to that. Um, <clears throat> that's everything in terms of announcements. So we'll go ahead and get into our study this morning. We are finishing off our series uh, in 1 Corinthians called Merely Pastors. And so as we look at the last section this morning, if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you that you're welcome to use.
This entire series has been about leadership in the church, but the more we've gotten along, the more the ground has shifted beneath us, and it's been important for us to remember that these leadership lessons, if you will, the way Paul articulates to the church in Corinth what it should look like is not for the sake of up-and-coming leaders or even as a critique of current leaders. He's actually criticizing their understanding of these things. He's saying that the way that you've been thinking about pastors, leaders, apostles, the way you think about uh, those in the church who are overseers um, is inaccurate, and it's causing a lot of problems. Um, They had basically grafted in an external understanding of leadership and authority, influence and power um, that looked a lot like the way we think about those things today. Um, There was a lot of room for celebrity, uh, eloquence and ability was highly regarded and those who didn't have those things were disregarded. And so Paul has been recalibrating them by reminding them the type of leadership that Jesus set up, um, which is servant leadership, where the way we think about our leaders ultimately as servants of the church Uh, and therefore they, in one sense, belong to the church. He's reminded us here that the only way to rightly assess those leaders in the ultimate sense uh, has to be left up to God because ultimately they work for him. Uh, He's also reminded them that their view of successful and good Christianity is skewed to look entirely different than the cross of Jesus Christ. And so whereas in Jesus' life we see... um, We see uh, kind of him being sidelined and despised and killed outside the city. And Paul follows in his footsteps and is willing to endure all sorts of negative press, if you will, for Jesus. The church looks around, sees none of those things, and they think this is the way it's supposed to be. They've bought their little piece of heaven on earth. This last section, though, I think is the most interesting because um, at the four chunks we've looked at over the last few weeks, Paul has consistently said, no distinction. All leaders equal. Different roles, different gifts, different callings, but all of us are just on the same playing field. Don't elevate one or another. And then he does something that seems relatively strange. He, He points out his uniqueness in his role in the Corinthian church. It's almost as if he's laid all this ground and there's this tempt temptation to feel like he's just ruined it all and pulled out the rug um, from under his argument. But what he does here very well is he adds another layer to the way we think about church leadership that is absolutely vital. If you have all these other things in place and miss this one, you miss the heart of the ministry, of pastoral ministry in particular. Um, Here, the, the reigning metaphor, the, the thing that Paul says is effectively, I'm like a father to you. He, he pulls that card, right? That intimate uh, inner family relationship. He says that's how close we are. That's what makes it unique. But what we discover here is how it is uh, that the church as a body or the church as a group of people moves forward. What type of leaders do they need? What type of leadership do they need? And so, with that in mind, please read with me um, the tail end of chapter 4 here, starting in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. 
For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would um, lead us in this text, that you would help us to understand um, both what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth and what you are saying present tense this morning to us. I ask as well, Lord, since Paul clearly sees his behavior as a leader, as a reflection of Jesus, um, that we would have a better understanding of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ this morning. Pray this in your name. Amen. I actually want to start by drawing your attention to uh, verse 15 to begin with. He says here, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. And so here, like I said, surprisingly, after all this time of saying, Apollos, Paul, Peter, we're nothing. God does all the work. We're just, we're just his employees, right? We're just, uh, we're just being faithful servants. Now he says, now it's true. He says, you have many guides in Christ. You have many teachers. The, um, the word here speaks specifically of a tutor, okay? Uh, if you're familiar with the book of Galatians, Paul makes an argument that the purpose of the Old Testament law was like a tutor or a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. In other words, the law shows us that we fall short of what God has for us, and it also shows us what we need in the sacrifices in Jesus Christ, and it all points towards Jesus, and so he basically says, you need to graduate, grow up, and receive Jesus. Um, Here, he uses that same word, and he says, look, you have many people operating in your life as tutors, as instructors, as guides, uh, as, as babysitters, some translations prefer, and he says, but you really only have, you don't have many fathers, he says. So he draws this distinction, okay? Now, the first thing we need to notice, and this is primarily because of the way our modern brains are wired, the first thing you need to notice here is that he doesn't see many. In fact, the word he uses here for many guides in verse 15, uh, it, it actually means thousands. It's myrads. It's that word, okay? You have thousands of thousands, but you only have a few fathers, and yet where does he put the weight of need and necessity? He puts it on the fathers, okay? Here's why I'm hitting this so hard before we even get started. We have a tendency to think that the way the Christian life works best is just primarily through teaching. And so if you just have good teaching, then you become a good Christian. And notice here, Paul's not making a criticism of these guides or the fact that the church has them. He's already laid out that all the teachers available to the body of Christ are just that, available to the body of Christ and should be recognized as such, um, you know, praised God for and made taken advantage of. However, However, he says, but there is a difference here and it's an important one. He draws a line, and 
ultimately what we're going to see this morning is that a podcast and a pastor are not the same thing, okay? Which we do have a tendency to forget. And every once in a while, I'll meet somebody who identifies as a Christian, dislocated from any local expression in the church, and they, they think, well, I, basically my church is, is, I listen to this pastor four states away who I've never met. You know, and, and so that's where I get what I need. Not only does that fall short of the New Testament vision of what the church is, which is a community that loves and serves one another, what I'm saying here is that you can't be part of the church without being part of a church. Um, but second, the, the other thing that we're seeing him dealing with here is, is that there's something built into the DNA of how God has designed the Christian life, how God has designed the church, as we'll see later, how, how God met mankind in Jesus Christ that is more than just words, more than just teaching. And so he feels comfortable and appropriate drawing a line and saying, it's true, you have many teachers and guides, but you don't have many fathers. And he says, if anyone deserves that title, I do. Why? What does he say in verse 15? He says, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, he's, he's pointing out that he started the church, that he had led many of them to Jesus, that in that sense, they were his spiritual children. Now, Paul would remind us in, uh, in many cases that that doesn't mean that he can take all the credit for their faith, and it do- also doesn't mean that they belong to him, okay? Here's, here's a problem that we have as, as moderns. We do not like authority. We just don't, okay? And so when we talk about leaders, we do it through gritted teeth, and when we talk about fathers, you know, and then there's, there's the um, concerns that we might have about the Bible and patriarchy and things like this, and all of this swills around, and because of that, we completely miss what Paul is trying to say. Listen here. Is he pointing to authority? Is that where he's drawing the line? Is that what he's saying? He's, he, is he saying, look, you belong to me. Is it the equivalent of when your mother used to say, I brought you into this world, I can take you out? Is that what's going on here? Because there's a tendency to hear that and completely miss why it is that he emphasizes the fatherhood of his role here. And the answer is really simple. What's the difference between a tutor and a father? It's love. That's the difference. Love as expressed in relationship. And so he chooses this intimate inner circle relationship uh, the, the role between a father and a child. And not just a child, but he says a beloved child. Okay? That's where the emphasis is here. And let me point out to you that the Christian understanding of leadership, this is true in the church. This is true for those of you who have employees working under you. It's obviously true in the family because that's where the metaphor comes from. Is ultimately identified as loving care. Okay? Now, does that mean that there's no room for discipline or for decision-making? Of course not. But if you, if you miss the hub, then all of those other things will be out of alignment. Okay. That's why he can finish this by saying, it's up to you. Do you want me to come with a rod of discipline or do you want me to come in gentleness? We'll get there later, but the obvious implication is where does Paul, how does he want to come? Does he cudgel in hand just waiting for them to screw up? Of course not. He does not want to discipline them. What he wants is what's best for them. So the ruling metaphor here of father is ultimately pointing out the fact that what we need in leadership in our Christian life is inherently relational. That's why a podcast doesn't cut it, okay? 
That's why the people who will make the greatest impact in your life uh, will not always be the ones who taught you the Bible. Clearly here, Paul is not making a distinction where he says, we the apostles are the fathers and normal pastors are just tutors. He's also not making a distinction uh, between saying there are teachers and there are pastors and, and I'm of one category. It's clear here that he's actually talking about their personal relationship, right? That's where it is. The, that's where the interaction is, okay? And so um, I want to be careful here and recognize that the fathers that you may have in the faith may not be pastors, okay? In fact, here, the place where he points to, and this is one of the major ways, because by the way, Paul talks about fatherhood in 12 of his 13 letters, and most of the time he's not talking to fathers, he's talking about himself, which is fascinating considering that Paul never had any kids. But he, he identifies, he identifies with this meta- metaphor. In just a second, he's going to say Timothy is another one of his beloved children. In another letter, he talks about Timothy in that way, and he says, he is my truest of children because he walks in my steps. And so he identified greatly um, with this concept. He utilized it often to try and get his point across. Um, And so what I want you to recognize this morning is not just, which is going to come out because I'm a pastor, not just that this is how pastors should be, but also that that any form of influence and leadership in the church follows this parental imagery, okay? And so like I said, you probably have people in your, in your life who don't have a title, but have always had that close relationship with you. Like I said, maybe they're the ones that led you to Jesus and have discipled you. That's the role that he's talking about here. And what I want us to get more than anything this morning is that that's vital, okay? That if you get to pick and choose, which you shouldn't, by the way, if you get to pick and choose, choose fathers. That's, that's what Paul is kind of getting at this morning. So we see how this metaphor plays out in a couple of different places, and the first one I want you to recognize is that, that leadership in this sense, and what we need most in our Christian life, um, comes out in verse 14. Notice what he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now that is an important clarification. Because if you read the verses that come right prior to this, it's a little bit intense. He pulls out both sarcasm and irony and lays it on pretty thick. He's almost, he's right on the precipice of mocking the Corinthian church for their current understanding. He says, here you are sitting on your thrones, your pockets and your stomachs are full, and here we are out in the street, our leaders. You know, he's drawing this big distinction, and he clarifies here, and he says, I'm not trying to shame you. He says, that's not what this is. Now, remember here that Paul in the first century is coming from a culture that's very different than ours. It's not individualistic, and so honor and shame is a massive concept, okay? How you reflect on other people, which is what honor and shame reduces down to, be it your family or your community uh, or your race or these types of things, this is where honor and shame comes into play. But what I want you to recognize is he creates a contrast here between shaming them and admonishing them, okay? Now, the difference is not necessarily in outcome. You all know very well that shame can do a good deal. In fact, it's striking here that he uses this because for those of us who are parents, you know the difference between shame and admonishing. There are times where your kids misbehave and you're embarrassed, and the quickest way you can get that embarrassment off of you 
is to shame your children. And what you're effectively saying is, you have embarrassed me, I don't want this to happen again, right? But when he uses the word admonishing, which is another one of Paul's favorite terms and shows up a surprisingly uh, high amount in his father passages, this, this is part of the image here, it has to do with what the early church fathers called disinterested love. Meaning that his responding in this way has nothing to do with him at all and everything to do with them. It's not for his sake to protect his image, to uh, you know, preserve his place in the church, or even to put them in their place so they recognize who he is. It's not about those things at all. The word admonish means to effectively warn in love. It's on behalf of the person you're admonishing. Okay? This is, in one way, the, the difference here. It's not just um, some sort of a... Uh, law enforcer position where Paul says what leadership looks like in the church is just draws lines and rings the bell when people cross them that's that's not how this is set up you can get that from a tutor right if you have a babysitter that's basically what they are rule keepers and they have a pledge to do that well but their love and ultimate interest in the child doesn't usually enter into it even if the goal or even if the consequences and behavior come out the same way Right? So what I'm saying here is a babysitter and a parent may talk to you about the same issue, but it can be a very different thing for very different reasons. And so Paul says, look, I'm not doing this to shame you. This isn't because you embarrass me. I'm not telling you these things to put you back in your place so that you feel ashamed and respond. He says, I'm admonishing you as my beloved children. He says, I'm interested in your life. I'm interested in this. The reason why he's mocked their unreality is because he wants them to enjoy reality. The reason why he's been so critical of their position is because it's dangerous territory. His interest is, like I said, disinterested love. It's not about him. In fact, we'll find that he continues this path no matter how they treat him. And this is something as a parent I understand because the reality of, of having a child, to some degree when it comes to loving them, it's out of your control. Like as, as, soon, uh, as soon as they're growing in the womb for women or definitely when, when a father first holds that child, there's really no reversing that. There's no going back. Uh, and uh, it doesn't mean that we don't act in our own interest as fallen human beings. Of course we do. But they don't have to earn our love. And we don't have the choice comp uh, component like when we get married, right? Where we go, I choose to love you. It's not like that with children. Paul just says, I feel responsible for you because you're mine. I care about you because, because you belong to me. He says it to the church in Thessalonica this way. He says, originally we came and we shared the gospel with you, but now we share our very lives because you've become dear to us. If you've ever had the opportunity to disciple someone, to bring them up in the faith, you'll know that discipleship almost always grows into friendship. It cannot help it. Okay? And it's because of love. And so here, the first thing we see is that he admonishes out of love. He's interested in their best interest, and he's willing to pursue it, even if it means, even if it means uh, that they dislike him, respond poorly. Right? Because here's the reality. Part of admonishing involves confrontation. And we don't like confrontation. And the reason we don't like confrontation is because we like to be liked. 
a lot of the times you biting your lip in your marriage or in your place of business or in your relationship with your siblings or even with people in the church, a lot of the times you bite your tongue not because you love them, but because you love you. But when we open our mouths, there's also the tendency to do it out of loving ourselves. Okay? Like, like this shame idea to be on the attack because they've broken the laws of our kingdom and we're going to put them in their place. Here's another thing that we need to understand about church discipline, and I might as well tell you now because the next four weeks are going to be a little bit intense. Read ahead and you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, The goal of these confrontational conversations, the goal even of the the final line of church discipline, which is excommunication, is always the restoration of relationship. It's always reconciliation. It's not, I'm done with you, there's no more chances. It's not, you've gone too far, I'll never trust you again. It's specifically, I'm bringing this to your attention because our relationship is broken and I want it to be fixed. Okay? And so this idea on both ends, admonish walks through, and it's not shame on one end and it's not silence on the other because both of those have a tendency to be about us. And Paul says, no, I care so much about you, I do not want you to be in this place of danger. I do not want you to continue on the path that you're on, and so I admonish you as my beloved children. Okay? The second thing I want you to notice is also built into this metaphor that he chooses. We see in verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Here's another thing you can't do with a podcast. Right? Imitation implies a couple of things. Okay? One is it implies enough relational overlap to actually see things that can be imitated, okay? Uh, And the second is it implies a good deal of honesty so that you can actually see what is and not just what appears to be. And that's really important. That's the difference between imitating your father and imitation crab, okay? Right? It's just Pollock and it's just flavored. It's not the real deal. But this ties into the parental metaphor, Imitation is something kids do naturally. Okay, I'm going to be honest right now. If you ever hear my children swear, they didn't get it off television. Right? They learned it from me, and let me point out to you that if I ever hear your children swear, I don't have to take the guilt for that. Okay? The imitation is kind of built in. Mannerisms and all these things. In fact, I've learned more about how weird and awkward I am by watching my children because it's like having a living, breathing mirror that follows me around all day long. Imitation is part of it. And Paul taps into this metaphor a lot. He tells us that we, as the children of God, should imitate him. Ephesians 5, verse 1. And walk in love just as Christ loved us. So we should imitate the Father. Added layer to this, okay, I don't know how many of you have entered into the trade of your father, but remember, for thousands of years, this is how the father-child relationship worked. Your father was a carpenter, so you became a carpenter. It's so much a part of our heritage that a lot of your last names are a reaction to the fact that you're the town blacksmith, right? You're the town cobbler, these types of things, and so was your father and your father's father. And so imitation also has this concept built into it. He says, be imitators of me. Now, the difference between that and do as I say, not as I do, I think is probably self-evident. You know, there's a recognition here that Paul identifies with the fact that he really is walking the walk. 
built into this, obviously, and this is, this is true for any of us who have a place of influence in anyone else's life, there's a responsibility here. People are paying attention and they learn from us all the time. And it's not just young, impressionable children. It's young in the Lord, impressionable Christians. And it's, uh, it's, it's just the reality of life that we pay attention to what's going on around us and we respond. And oftentimes we respond in imitation. In fact, if we didn't have the rest of this passage, we could feel like Paul was being terribly arrogant and saying, hey man, if you want to know what the Christian life is supposed to be lived like, just be like me, right? But if you read through everything he said before this, what does it look like? It looks like being a fool for Christ. It looks like uh, humility instead of honor. It looks like uh, sacrifice on other people's behalf. That's what he's pointing to. And more importantly, he's not just stopping the line and saying, I am the upper echelon, the prototype of Christianity, just follow in my footsteps. No, he's recognizing, uh, he says in another passage this way, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Okay? And so he says, I am following in the footsteps of Jesus. Get in line. But notice it's in lifestyle, it's in walk, it's in means, it's not just about words. And this is one of the great dangers of making the teaching mistake, okay? We need the word of God. It's living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. We need pastors, evangelists, prophets, uh, teachers, and apostles who help us to understand that word of God, Ephesians chapter four. But we also need life, life together, relationship, examples, these types of things. When Jesus chooses his 12 disciples who will become, become the apostles. What is his methodology? Does he say, go and get this degree? Does he say, sit down and listen to my seminar? No, he says, come and be with me. And they spend three years in the presence of Jesus, watching and listening and learning and being confounded and getting it wrong and getting confused. In fact, when they finally draw the line in the sand, and even though they ran away when uh, the Jewish leadership put Jesus to death, here they stand, and it's their lives on the line, and they're saying, look, you tell us right or wrong if it's better to listen to God than man. He says, but we can't but help but tell what we've seen. And the men, these religious leaders who are, um, you know, basically trying to get them to talk about, stop talking about Jesus, it says, and they realized they had been with Jesus. Even they understood. In fact, you know the term disciple? Let me just be clear here. There's, a, there's another Greek word for student. Do you know what the difference between a student of, and a disciple is? You can be a student of algebra and not a disciple of algebra. You can be a student of Jesus and a disciple of Jesus, and only one are you called to. Okay? It's not about teaching and ideas. It's something else. Okay? And so he takes this and he says, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Be an imitator of me. Walk in my footsteps. Now notice, even this he doesn't think can be done from a distance. He says, you've seen my lifestyle while I was there, but notice what he says in verse uh, Verse 17, that is why I sent, or depending on your translation, I am sending you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Do you see this? He doesn't even think that if, if they've gotten off course, if they need an example, he doesn't think he can write about. 
He does, but he doesn't think that's sufficient. He knows he can't get there, and so he sends Timothy, another one of his beloved kids, for this reason. Do you see that? He says, be imitators of me so that you can. I'm sending you a living, breathing lesson. Okay. Like I said, all I'm trying to get uh, our minds wrapped around this morning is that that's part of the way that this is all supposed to work. That we need, uh, we need to live life together in such a way that there's something to imitate. He says, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. If you make a long study of Paul's methodology in planting churches, uh, you will find that he enters into a community, he preaches boldly, he explains who Jesus is when he recognizes people responding to it, he sets up a new church, and eventually he moves on. But what we find out in this passage and a few others like it is, is that he did this all in the midst of the rest of his life. And so his evangelism happened in the marketplace while he was making tents. And it says, uh, according to Acts chapter 20 in the city of Ephesus, that he taught them the word daily in public and from house to house. This is why Richard Baxter in the 15th century, one of the Puritan preachers in his book, The Reformed Pastor, says that visitation is the most important aspect of pastoral ministry. Not the preaching. Now, I have been trying to think through that book forever, but it's so different, 15th or 16th century and today, right? Because when he went to the house in the middle of the day, everybody was there. The kids, the mother, the father who had a shop out back, right? Uh, it, it, it's such a different thing, but it points to that same reality. The one that he's observing here is that there's this relational component that is necessary for leadership in the church, that is necessary for pastors in the church, that is necessary for those of us who are trying to raise up other Christians in the Lord. Imitation is a part of this puzzle. Now look at what he says in verse 18. He says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. Two things are going on here. The first I want you to notice is he's basically recognizing that the kids are home without adult supervision. And he says some of them are acting up, and the oldest children here know exactly what he's talking about, right? Mom and dad are out, so I'm in charge. That's what's going on in Corinth. And he says these people are arrogant, like daddy's not coming home, but he's coming home, and that's not going to play the same way. But what I want you to notice before we focus on that is that he says if the Lord wills. Here's where authority always goes wrong. It's when it's seen as absolute power, right? When you're at the top of the food chain, at the pinnacle of the organization, at the point of the pyramid, that's where absolute power corrupts absolutely. And Paul here doesn't see his role in the Corinthian church as, a, uh, as an excuse not to be submitted to the Lord. Even his coming to them. Something that I think in, in, the most, in most situations, we, we very rarely remember the fact that there's this sovereign God and we can try, but we can't always get where we're going. Ask Jonah on his way to Tarshish, right? There's this reality that we forget about that we are not in control. And all the time we make plans as if they're going to pan out, and they don't. James says, when you talk about your business plans, don't go, yes, I'm going to go such and such a place and do such and such a business, but always say, if the Lord wills. 
okay? That's not just a tip of the hat to God. It's a personal preaching, right? It's a sermon to yourself that goes, oh, right, I'm not in control here. Listen, if you read what we call the, uh, the household... I'm going to fake it. There's a term for it. Um, but in Ephesians and Colossians, we find these lists of household behavior, okay? Parents and children, husbands and wives masters and slaves, right? So they take the first century Roman household and he writes how it's supposed to look for all of them. It's a code, a household code, okay? One of the things that makes those unique against any other household code we have on record or any other understanding of leadership is that he recognizes that every husband is also a wife because they're the bride of Christ and that every father is also a child because they're the child of God, and that every master is also a slave because they're a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is so important, okay? The fatherhood that's so concerning to us, the husband-oriented leadership that can bother us at times, so often it's because it's missing that component, and because it's top of the food chain, it goes completely off the rails, okay? It's not authority that's the problem, It's man-centered authority. Paul recognizes here that even as an apostle, even as a father of the church, he doesn't have final say or final control over their lives. He is also a child, even as they are his children. And he he responds here saying, if the Lord wills. And he says here, there's arrogant ones, and he says there's a lot of talk, but we're going to see how it rates in power. Now, here's another thing. There's a tendency in discussions of authority to hear power and think of particular things, okay? To read this as if what he's saying is, when I get there, I'm just going to flex my muscles, and we'll see who's still left standing, right? That's not the power he's talking about. If you read the rest of 1 Corinthians, especially what's come before, he's already made a contrast. He says, everything in the gospel itself looks foolish to the world. The fact that we could be saved by a man crucified is foolishness to the Greeks. The fact that the Messiah would come merely to die is craziness to the Jews. He says, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay? And so I want you to think of this not in power as in enforcement, but power as in energy. He's talking about actual stuff happening, not just talk. That's the distinction he's making. And see, the reality of of these other methodologies that reduce it down to teaching without relationship and says that basically um, education is what's most needed uh, or reduces it down to just word is that it doesn't actually work. What he says here is, These leaders you've attached yourself to, these teachers and this methodology that's so important to you, it's not actually changing your life. I mean, it is in one sense. It's changing it for the worse because it's puffing them up with pride. But that's that's the funny thing about this uh, expression to puff up, right? It just means to fill with air. There's no substance to it. There's no reality to it. You look bigger But like the bullfrog in Aesop's old story, standing against the bull, bull, there's no strength there, just the appearance of strength. And he says, but what I'm bringing to the table is power. It's changed lives. Why? Because he's actively following Jesus. Does that mean that it's silent and word-free? Of course not. Words are part of that, but those words happen in the context of life lived together. 
That's where the difference is. That's where the change happens. That's where it happened for the disciples. And so he says, if the Lord wills, I will come and I'll find out if these arrogant people are not just talk but power. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. Then notice what he says in verse 21. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? And so he says, do you want me to come as the discipliner? Uh, Do you want me to come as the authority who has to set things right? Do you want me to come with the rod? He says, or would you rather I come in love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, what I want you to recognize here is by, by offering them this, we know what side Paul's on. You could easily read this appropriately as saying, I want to come in gentleness if you'll let me. Right? That's what he's saying here. And this, is, this, is the, this is the last component here that's so important is that the spirit of ministry is gentleness first, discipline second. Okay. Now, we're dealing here with heart. We're dealing with motivation. We're dealing with stuff that can easily f- be faked in word, but not in power, right? We all know that the language of abusers is always tied up into this is for your own good. I'm doing this because I love you. I recognize that all this stuff can be faked this morning. But what I want you to recognize nonetheless is even if there's counterfeits, it doesn't deny reality. And more importantly, there's no other hope than this. Okay? To, to try and get rid of parents because we're anti-authority is nonsense. Children need parents, okay? And as much as you may buck at the other places of the house code and go, I don't know if I like this idea of husband being leader of the wife. I'm not sure how I feel about this idea of a hierarchy with with employer and employee. That's one place, parents and children, that we don't tend to buck, where we recognize that the only hope of our children is to be good fathers, not to be not fathers. To be present parents doing proper parenting and not absent parents, right? And so, yes, these things are abused all the time. They're taken advantage of. They can be faked. People can use their positions in the church or in their family or in their business as a place to build up their own kingdom and step on the backs of everyone they know. That's totally true. But when love is present, it's a different dynamic. We have to watch out as well as being swift to confrontation. Here, he's so patient. He wants to do it the gentle way. There's a hard way, but he's not interested in taking it. Now, recognize here that we've yet to expose the issues that need to be dealt with, and they are serious, okay? Here's what's going on in the Corinthian church that he's talking about that he wants to deal with gently. There's a guy who is now sleeping with his mother-in-law, and the church is standing by and applauding it as an example of their freedom they have available in Christ. Uh, They're taking one another to court and suing them. I mean, however big the church is in Corinth, it can't be more than a couple thousand people, and they have a reputation for court cases within the church. I mean, just realize how regular of a habit that'd have to be for it to be noticed and reported to Paul. Um, 
They're getting together to celebrate communion, to partake of bread and remember Jesus' sacrifice. And the rich people are using it as an opportunity to gorge themselves to drunkenness and keeping the poor people out. Everything in this church is wrong. And we would expect, I think, Paul to just storm in there and put things in line because they're so out of sorts. And he says, no, spirit of gentleness. This is where it begins. Admonish. Here's one place where I think the church consistently goes wrong on dealing with sin, both within and without. We're so about boundaries and lines that we just, we just draw a line and say in or out, and that's the end of discussion. We're all about getting the final word, and we never have the first word. We never go, let's talk about this. We never follow Jesus' pattern of when somebody sins against us, going to them privately and just saying, hey, let's deal with this, right? We blog about it. We, you know, we go straight to the throat. So often right now, the tendency is for us to deal in these big generalities, and the first thing out of our mouth that anyone hears from us is this ultimate statement of right or wrong, of forward or backwards, of these types of things. And then we act as if it's a done job with the people in our lives who are involved in those things. But what we see here is something different, and there's a reason why Paul says this is what taking care of people looks like. It's because that's what we see in Jesus Christ. Okay. According to the Bible's narrative, human beings are not just broken, although that's an appropriate metaphor that it uses. We're not just blind, meaning we don't understand our condition. We are rebels. Okay. We are standing against God and our behavior and trying to take the throne of the universe for ourselves. And that's both in our wanting to control our lives and its outcome, as well as in wanting everybody to see how amazing we are and be worthy of all of their worship. All of these things enter into this. And this has been going on as a human culture for thousands of years, since the beginning of time, the Bible says, since the beginning with Adam and Eve. And God patiently comes up with a plan. And instead of sending the Messiah to set everything right, Right, the the bridles of blood of the prophet, or the blood up to bridles of the prophet, uh, the uh, coming with sword and with power and judgment. Instead, Jesus comes meek and mild, and patiently bears as the Jews put him to death. And even that, God utilizes on our behalf. Okay, nothing says that God loves us with a disinterested love on our behalf more than the cross of Jesus where he says, look, everything you deserve, I will take in my own body. I will bear it on my own shoulders. Not only that, but also with imitation. This is one of the things that's unique about Christianity against all other religions. It says that God not only tells us how to live, but became a man and showed us. One of the reasons why the narratives of the Gospels are so important is because we see the Christian life lived out. And there's this tendency, I think, to try and create some sort of division between Jesus and the rest of the New Testament. Like Jesus was doing something and then the New Testament uh, apostles came in and built a religion. For one, that's just a very poor reading of the writings of the apostles. They are chock full of the words of Jesus Christ. They don't have to quote the Gospels because they're writing before them. Okay, on the timeline, that's an important thing to keep in mind. But everything they're saying, they've learned from Jesus himself, and that's really clear. But we also see it in their behavior. 
That's what Paul has said in the last passage. He says, we as your leaders, we as apostles look just like Jesus, despised and rejected and foolish, and we suffer on your behalf. Sometimes, sometimes there's this tendency to think that the greatest evidence that God doesn't exist or God isn't good is the reality of human suffering. Now, I appreciate what C.S. Lewis points out, that we as human beings are pretty good at creating a lot of that, right? We can't blame God for the atom bomb or for torture. We invented those. But even when you get down to the suffering of the innocent, there's something that Christianity offers that no other religion does. Because it says that God willingly entered into that suffering and partook of it. Okay. It's not just that he had a plan to fix it and get rid of it, but he took it upon himself. One of the ways we understand that concept is with the word love. Because we view it in human life, right? When a soldier dives on a grenade to save his, uh, you know, his, uh, I'm so terrible at this stuff. What do you call a group of military? Yeah, their pl- platoon will work. That's right. Uh, when, when a parent, right, um, throws themselves in front of a moving bus to save a child without a thought, okay? When we spend many sleepless nights raising an infant, you know, when, when all of our dreams get set aside for the sake of our family, that's what it looks like to willingly endure suffering, right? And that's love. And so this is, this is what Jesus did, and in that, he, he creates a paradigm. That's why we're disciples of Jesus and not just students of Christianity. Because we're following Jesus. We're loving as he loved. You know, the last thing, um, John tells us that one of the last things Jesus says to his disciples in the Gospels He says, receive the spirit and he breathes on them. And he says, the father is sending you just as he sent me. He creates a paradigm. He says, go just as I have gone. Do just as I have done. As I have represented, so you represent me. Okay? It's a comparison there. It's it's related to that. And so that means that leadership, power, influence, success, all of these things have to be filtered from the through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It changes the paradigm. And then the last one here, this spirit of gentleness, you know, this is what Peter says. He says, there will be people who say, you say the world is going to come to judgment. You say everything will be set right, but I just see Tuesday after Tuesday after Tuesday with the same problems. Everything seems to be going on just as it always was. And he says, do not, Peter tells us, do not mistake what God is doing for anything but long-suffering, but for patience, because he's not willing that any should perish. The danger that we're all in today, in today's world, where there's so much abuse and there's so much criticism of abuse, the danger is to take bad authority and make that the image and determine that's what God must be, so I don't want anything to do with it. But the Bible takes the other way and says, no, this is who God is, and so this is what leadership looks like. This is what authority looks like. This is what discipline looks like. This is what patience looks like. And so it's an oversimplification, sure, but the reality is that ministry functions in the footsteps of Jesus. And that's true of, of leaders, and it's true of, of everybody. That's, we're imitators of Christ. That's the path we're in, and it affects everything. 
And so let me just nail it down this way. One of the shortest ways to tell the story of the Bible is like this. Because of sin, we were separated from God. And God so wanted to be with us that he became a man to live life among us and then offer his life on our behalf so that we could live life with him and ultimately be with him forever. Okay, Genesis begins, God walking in the garden with mankind. Revelation ends, and man and God are together, and they dwell together. God is in their midst. He is their God, and they are their people. That reality is, is the strong thing of this. What God wants is to be with you and for you to be with him. And so it's inherently relational. God has initiated relationship with you. When we were far from him, he came to us. He pursued us. He was patient with us. He admonished us. He invites us and says, Come, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, take my yoke upon you, because uh, I am meek. He says, uh, All you are thirsty, come and drink. comes with invitations when he has all of the authority of demand. And Paul the Apostle does the same thing. He could set things right. He can bring the hammer. He can set up what's going on too, but his heart, his heart aligns things differently. That's a reflection of who God is. Let's pray. God, I think there's no place where the culture is selling us short now more than on the concept of relationship. We always choose these shortcuts for intimacy. We settle for Facebook and voyeuristically watching lives play out instead of participating in those lives. And we call that friendship. We have lots of Facebook friends. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us the deep reality of these things, that the way that the kingdom of God comes with power is through incarnation, through love embodied and involved, with a heart of gentleness, with disinterested love, calling for imitation, setting an example. I pray, Lord, that we would um, put ourselves in a place where that's even a possibility, where we'd be open to the risk of relationship, the risk of authority, the risk of submission. But I pray most of all, Lord, that we would be a church that imitates Christ, that walks in his footsteps, that loves just as we have been loved, that goes out and enters in and is patient and admonishing and speaks even the greatest criticisms out of a heart for others and with a gentle spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would do as we were meant to do in our creation when you made us in the image of God, that we would image you, that we would reflect your goodness and your love, your graciousness. And I ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ who made those things known. Amen.